Hello and welcome to Sanfran Cut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today I'm excited to welcome Aslak Halsoy. Aslak, thank you so much for joining us. Hi Darko, thanks for having me on the podcast. Great, thanks. Yeah, please just go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm a programmer, I've been a programmer since the late 90s, so that's over 20 years now. I've been programming in lots of different languages, started with, with Java, then did Ruby for many years and some .NET, and lately Go, JavaScript, TypeScript, and probably a few others. I've been an open source contributor. I started doing that quite early, around 2003, I think, when I released some tools in the Java space that nobody uses anymore, and then moved over to work on the RSpec project. Cucumber grew out of RSpec, and I've been working on Cucumber since 2008, 2009. So yeah, that's about 13 years. I'm also an entrepreneur. I founded a company in 2013 or 14 that we sold in 2019 to a company called SmartBear. And that's where I'm currently working. Great. Thanks. And our ways cross in a way that I was introduced with the team to TDD BDD, Ruby, and all that through a Ruby community, which was, I think, one of the early adopters of like TDD and BDD, and was pretty, let's say, in a way religious about it, <laughs> which was a great thing, I think. And yeah, then Cucumber is one of main building blocks of BDD. So maybe for the listeners who are not deep into the BDD and Cucumber as a tool for practicing that, can you give us a short introduction how you came up to creating Cucumber and uh, your take on the BDD? I think we actually had to go nearly 20 years back in time to 2003. At the time, I was living in London and there was a community of extreme programming or XP practitioners who met up regularly. I was working in a company called ThoughtWorks at the time and TDD being part of XP was something that everybody was very interested in. And one of my colleagues at the time, Dan North, he was training a bunch of people in TDD, some of our customers, and he realized that TDD was really hard for people to grasp. He ran into this frequent misunderstanding that people thought it was about testing, whereas the way he and many others thought of it is not really about testing, it's just a development workflow. So he came up with BDD as a variation of TDD to make it easier for people to understand the core values of TDD. And the main difference between TDD and BDD is that BDD has a stronger emphasis, I'd say, on collaboration between technical people and business stakeholders. So it's kind of a tool to discover misunderstandings that happen very early on in the requirements phase. And the other thing is expressing the understanding of what the requirements are, not as unit tests, which is what you would do with traditional TDD, but rather as acceptance tests. So higher level tests that are expressed in a way that the technical stakeholders can understand. And I just want to emphasize that both of these things, collaborating with the non-technical stakeholders and using acceptance tests, that was actually emphasized originally by TDD, but it was sort of not regarded by the community as the most important thing. So BDD sort of tries to take those two values as two of the most important aspects of the practice. 
So around this time, you know, JUnit was pretty mature already, and there was RSpec, NUnit, and lots of unit testing tools. But apart from fitness, there were no other tools for writing acceptance tests using a syntax that can be read and understood and even written by non-technical people. So that's why I started Cucumber. I wanted to write these kind of you know, high-level readable acceptance tests that everybody could understand. So I needed a tool. <laughs> so it started out in RSpec and then was later extracted into its separate tool. We've just released the CICD for MonoRepos ebook. It's for software engineers who are evaluating or want to optimize the monorepo way of software development. You'll learn how to build a monorepo-first CI-CD pipeline and have a functional microservice application built, tested, and deployed from a monorepo. Check it out on our website, semaphoreci.com backslash resources backslash monorepo dash CI-CD. You spent a lot of time as part of these communities, let's say, and we can put them under a single umbrella. What are maybe some changes that you have seen? Because these things have adoption cycles, which is very funny. <laughs> yeah, in a way, there are different communities, usually form around languages or frameworks, and then they evolve and then embrace various tools in with different rates and with a different level of engagement. So we cannot say it's 20 years, but it's also not too far away from that. Have you seen any changes, any patterns in adoption, how teams are embracing? And, you know, there are also completely new generation of people, like every, let's say, three to five years, <laughs> there is a new generation of developers. Yeah, definitely. So the first release of Cucumber came out in 2008, or was it nine? I can never remember. And at that time, it was only Ruby. And it came out at a time that Ruby and Rails was quite new. So the first adopters of Cucumber and also BDD was Ruby on Rails developers. At the time, there were also some tools in the Java space, but primarily, you know, all of the buzz around it came from the Ruby community. And two or three years later, when my friend Matt Wynn and I had realized that Cucumber was kind of taking off, we decided to write a book about it. So when that book came out sort of three years into Cucumber's life, it made it more accessible to a whole new audience. And the people who picked it up then were testers. People who maybe traditionally had been doing a lot of manual testing were now adopting Cucumber as a way to automate their tests. And I think that's when we see the first shift in paradigm, because as I alluded to earlier, you know, TDD and BDD isn't about testing. <laughs> It's really a programmer-focused workflow. At least that's the way we intended it to be, and I guess in many ways still intended to be. But people have adopted Cucumber as an acceptance testing tool where they write the tests afterwards rather than before they write the code. And at the same time, people would start using Cucumber with browser automation tools like Selenium WebDriver and Water and other things. So it started out as being a tool where developers would use it not necessarily to test through the UI. And almost overnight, it became a tool that was used by testers who would use a browser automation framework to test existing code. So that happened around 2012 or something like that. And 
I would say it hasn't really changed much, you know, in the decade that followed after that. You were 2022, and the majority of Cucumber users are still using it as a test after tool with a browser automation tool. And we've tried to educate our users and the community about other ways and more efficient ways to use it. But I think we've failed in that regard, even if we've been standing on the rooftops, you know, shouting it really loud. There's just so much, I would almost call it misinformation out there about using it as a testing tool that that is what most people are using it as. Just a couple of months ago, as I was speaking with one of our prospects, they said, okay, we are really struggling with connecting our UX teams and business people or developers. We are separated by silos yeah, and separated by, you know, brick walls. And we have found this great tool, Cucumber, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really happy about that, but it's around for like, you know, a decade. <laughs> well, it's a funny thing, you know, because Cucumber is a decent testing tool. But it's just that it's a tool that if you use it right, you can get so much more value from it. So I don't really mind when people use it with the web driver and just drive UIs with it. I just feel a bit sorry if they haven't discovered the BDD way of using it. But you can only really do that if you are in control over the whole stack, which is difficult when you're working in a silo, either as a front-end developer who doesn't touch the back-end or as a tester who just doesn't touch anything, just tests the final product. I was interested to hear about your efforts to try to teach people, you know, and to sway the whole community in that direction. And what are some of the experiences and how it looked? When I started Cucumber Limited with some of the contributors, some of the people in the core team of the Cucumber Open Source Project, one of the ways that we made money was to do trainings for companies. So company would come to us and say, you know, we want to adopt. We've heard about all the benefits of BDD and Cucumber. We want to adopt it. Can you help us? So we would run a three-day training course with them and teaching them how we think it ought to be used. And then occasionally we would also get coaching engagements where we would come back and spend some time with them after the training and just help them as they were learning and putting into practice what they learned in the training. So I guess that's the probably most significant effort that I and my colleagues have done. We've also written blog posts and we've had podcasts and Twitter storms and so on. But there's only so much you can do to educate when there is so much more additional information out there that says something different. So yeah, it's hard. You know, Lately, there's a new book series called the BDD Books written by Sebros and Gaspar Naj that teach you the three main practices of BDD as we've come to understand them, which is discovery, which is a completely non-technical thing. It's just how do you have efficient communication between the development team and the non-technical stakeholders? And the second one is formulation. How do you actually write? How do you capture and write down in Gherkin documents in a good way, right? this understanding from the discovery. And then finally, automation. What are the, some good techniques that you can use to automate this stuff? So two of these books have come up, Discovery and Formulation, and the Automation book is in the works. And those three books are capturing, I would say, all of the knowledge that we've sort of built and evolved as a community over the past decade. So for anybody who really wants to learn BDD, I would recommend those three books, bddbooks.com. 
that's a great resource. We'll make sure to include it in the notes. In the beginning, there was our spec book and the cucumber book. And those were like, you know, if you are a Ruby developer, those are like Bibles, you know, and you started from there and you had to go. I remember for me and also some of the colleagues, it was a bit of a struggle that you are embracing kind of at the same time, the practice of like TDD and BDD, which are on a different levels. And it's not trivial because to the best of my knowledge, still majority of the universities in computer science courses are taking, you know, generally design and testing overall as a, you know, some afterthought. It's not the first class citizen on the courses. And with your experience of teaching teams and, you know, helping them embrace BDD and Cucumber, and you probably also have a connecting points with TDD then in those companies as a design tool and so on. What are some patterns and anti-patterns that you have seen? What's hard to people to grasp? What they usually miss? One thing that's hard to grasp is the same thing that was hard to grasp for the people that Dan North was training when he came up with BDD, which is realizing that BDD and TDD is not about testing existing code. It's about designing a code that hasn't yet been written. You know, that is really hard for a lot of people to grasp, especially non-developers, because you kind of have to be a developer or a programmer to understand those concepts. So when we were teaching people, you know, we would teach everything from product owners and business analysts to manual testers to developers, but quite often in, you know, enterprise organizations where you have silos and there can be barriers in the organizational structure that makes it really hard, even if you understand BDD, you know, to put it in place because you need to tear down some of those walls that prevent people from collaborating efficiently. Another anti-pattern I've often seen is when a team or an organization realizes that, you know, all of the manual tests that they're currently relying on are too slow and too inefficient and preventing them from delivering continuously, they want to automate all, they want to basically translate all of the manual tests into automated tests. And they have these long manual tests and they start on this journey to automate them. And that can become a real uphill struggle because you're dealing with a system that wasn't really designed for test automation. You know, one of the common problems is that you can't easily put the system in the state that you want it to be in, in order to run those assertions that you want, simply because it's just a black box, right? So what I usually recommend to those teams is that it's good that you want to adopt test automation, but do it very incrementally. Only do it when you're modifying it. For example, if you're adding a new feature to the system, well, do test automation for that new thing, but don't worry so much about the old stuff. You can still use your manual testing effort for that. And the other thing is, if you have tests that never fail, well, there's no point in automating those, right? You should focus on the ones that tend to fail often or the ones that verify very critical behavior in your system. So there's a lot of techniques you can use to filter out from those 10,000 manual tests you have and maybe you know, filter it down to maybe 50 and focus on those. Every time you modify something, yeah, write an automated test. So you have to adopt this stuff incrementally. You can't have a big bang translation effort. We've just released the CICD for Mono Repos ebook. It's for software engineers who are evaluating or wanna optimize the Mono Repo way of software development. You'll learn how to build a monorepo-first CI-CD pipeline and have a functional microservice application built, tested, and deployed from a monorepo. 
check it out on our website, semaphoreci.com backslash resources backslash monorepo dash CICD. I remember clearly some more experienced colleagues, you know, saying to me about the piece of code that I wrote. Okay, code looks decent, but how we're going to test it? It involved, you know, connecting to some payment, you know, gateways and APIs and all of that. And that cannot be easily tested. So that's uh, one of the moments when I realized, okay, I now start to get why, you know, BDD and TDD are also design tools, you know, and you design software through them because you must enable yourself to test the things ultimately that you wrote. There's one question that every tester and developer need to ask themselves when they design a test. And that is, you know, what kind of confidence do I want to get from this test? Do I want to get confidence that the business logic is working correctly? You know, that's one kind of confidence. Or do I want to get confidence that it works on this particular platform? You know, does it work in this particular browser? Does it work in this particular phone? Well, that's a different kind of confidence, right? Uh, the third kind of confidence is, does it interface correctly with these external systems? You can come up with different kinds of confidence categories, you know, performance, business logic, interacting with external systems. But if you're trying to get confidence that all of these things are working in the same test, that's not going to work. You have to design tests specifically for a particular kind of confidence. So we need a lot of confidence from our systems. We need to make sure that they work on different platforms. We need to make sure that the business logic is implemented correctly. We need to make sure that interaction with external systems is working well. You can't get all of that confidence from the same test. You need different tests to test on platforms. You need different tests to test business logic. You need different tests to test interaction with external systems. So that's one mistake that a lot of people are making. They're trying to fit it all into the same test. So when I do BDD, I tend to focus on the business logic aspect. I want to make sure that the business logic is correct. That's really where BDD shines. It's not a great way to verify that you've integrated properly with a payment gateway. It's not a great way to verify that this system works on all these different operating systems or browsers or mobile phones or whatever. You can use other kinds of tests for that. So if we accept then that BDD is great for making sure you have implemented the business logic correctly, that means you need to be able to decouple all of the external factors that can sort of pollute your result. For example, a payment gateway or something that can slow it. So anything that's slow or unreliable, you want to decouple that when you run your tests because it's important that your tests are really fast and it's important that they always produce the same result. So the technique that I use and many other people in the BDD community use is something called ports and adapters or hexagonal architecture, which is basically you put an interface. It's probably easier to explain this with a statically typed language like a Java. So rather than your business logic invoking, you know, calling out to some sort of payment API directly, you define an interface that encapsulates that sits in front of that payment gateway. And then you can have one implementation that actually talks to the payment gateway and another one which doesn't do anything. Maybe it has some pre-recorded results or something like a stub. And then you can still test your business logic and verify that it behaves correctly 
without connecting the real payment gateway. And then you have another test that will verify that your payment gateway interaction code is working correctly, but that would be a unit test that you run as a as an integration yeah. test, right? So we need all these different kinds of tests. We can't do everything with the same tests. Very well explained, very valuable. But you probably seen that, as you mentioned, the Rails community. It's so easy to couple that verifying the business logic is okay with the actual implementation of the platform, which is usually web and some web interface in the middle. And I'm guilty of doing that many, many times throughout my career. And what I'm seeing these days with customers there is that very expensive test suite that ends up being, you know, maintained, which is testing things all the way, you know, small change, small feature added is actually testing almost the whole browser, the whole JavaScript test, all the way down to the database with various networking calls all the way back, being very fragile, very expensive to run over and over. And I'm seeing a lot of teams struggling with that, with that testing pyramid and, you know, how they maintain it. And different people in teams employ different kind of iterations and try to heal that or just, you know, steer it in the right direction. Any experiences or tips or advices that you can give in that area? You do need some of those tests. You do need some of the tests that go through the entire stack. Those are your smoke tests. Those are the tests that verify that everything is working together. Those are the tests that try to give you all the kinds of confidence. Confidence that your database is fine, that your external APIs are fine, that it works in this particular browser, and your business logic. It's good to have a few of those, but for a medium-sized system, typically I wouldn't have more than like maybe a dozen of those. Maybe each one of those tests run in five to 10 seconds, and you can run them in CI. You don't need to run them on your workstation every time. But then there's everything in between, right? And I think that's where you should be using unit tests. Think of the hardware manufacturing industry, right? Or even car manufacturing. When something comes off the conveyor belt as a finished product, yeah, people, you know, when you make a new car, I don't know how they test cars, but they probably drive it around the block just to see if it kind of works. But there's been so much testing going into the individual components before that, right? Everything from the software inside the car to every different physical component that they're tested in isolation. But the reason why that testing doesn't require another very thorough full stack testing afterwards is that they have some well-defined interfaces. They have some well-defined interfaces between the various components so that when you put them together, you don't need to do as thorough testing. And this again is related to ports and adapters. When you're designing an application according to ports and adapters, you are defining what those interfaces are and you can test the components at their interface, and you don't really need to worry so much about testing it again when you bundle it together. I do think that statically typed languages help a lot in this regard, because you can have the compiler verifying that you are respecting the interface or the contract between components. But with dynamically typed languages, you know there is no compiler that will tell you if you're calling a method that wants three arguments with two arguments, you're not going to know that at compile time because there is no compile time. So with languages like Ruby, unfortunately, you do need to rely more on those tests that test the whole assembly. And then there's also the thing about what you mentioned. You're guilty, and I think everybody who's built a Rails application is a bit guilty of mixing concerns in the same code. For example, putting the business logic in your active record models 
makes it really hard to test that business logic without a database, which makes the whole thing really slow and so on. But that's just the way Rails is designed. You know, that's the price you're paying for the ridiculously rapid development experience you get, at least in the beginning of the project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm mostly speaking with people who have 10-year-old Rails apps. <laughs> So yeah, those rapid things at the beginning are biting back <clears throat> pretty aggressively <laughs> 10 years later. But you can still do it, right? I mean, I'm working mostly in TypeScript at the moment and we're using a framework called Next.js, which is, I guess, it's not quite Rails, but it's a full stack web framework and you can easily end up with the same kind of tightly coupled code there that you can only test with acceptance tests, but what I've started doing is to adopt a more functional programming paradigm where I extract lots of small functions and I unit test those functions in isolation. You can do the same thing with Ruby, right? You have a lot of business logic in your active record model. Well, just extract it to what is it called? A poro, plain old Ruby object. And then you can test that in a unit test without Rails, right? But you have to be aware of these problems. And I think a lot of people don't think about abstractions and decoupling and haven't really experienced the pain. And by the time you experience the pain, it feels like so much effort to try and undo that. But you can do these things incrementally. My rule of thumb is that when I'm working on a legacy system, I only improve the things that I'm working on. So, you know, I've got to implement a new feature here and it's a big hairball. Fine. Okay. I'll spend a bit of time extracting that so that I can TDD on that little corner of the code. And then things are a little bit better and I'm a little bit happier. Working as a consultant and then as you're entering a big and old project, it really forces you. You have a lot of limitations that you must have a, a focus point. What are you trying to improve? I remember that helping me a lot because I cannot go, you know, ballistic on various parts of the system and, and oh, and I'm going to improve everything. No, you're not. You're tasked with improving this one component and that kind of discipline, which is dictated by external factors was a pretty fruitful thing for me. Your opinion of what is good and bad is probably similar to my opinion of what's good and bad, although we probably have some differences and everybody has a different opinion of what's good and bad. Another practice that I think is really important in order to have a nicely testable code base with fast and reliable tests and so on is to have shared code ownership. If I go in and change a bunch of stuff, that's not really going to fly unless everybody else in the team agrees with my approach. It has to be the team's approach. So in my experience, if you want to do BDD and TDD, you kind of have to mix it with practices like at least occasional pair programming or mob programming to build that shared ownership of the code. Because it means introducing abstractions that you wouldn't otherwise have introduced, like decoupling, right? Everybody needs to understand and see the benefits. Otherwise, they're just going to throw their arms up in the air and go like, why did you do all of this stuff? Well, you know, we can do it much simpler. Yes, but it's so that we can have a better test suite and work faster. Yeah, it's about investment that will pay in the long term. And what will pay off in the short term versus long term are usually somewhat you know, competing and opposed. Yeah. Well, great. Any war stories <laughs> that we have heard here? with TDD and BDD and embracing them. And for Cucumber, you mentioned that there is a team working on it. And what are some of the things that are currently ongoing with the Cucumber of the future? Oh yeah, lots of things. 
So since we were acquired by SmartBear, you know, there's a small team that's paid to maintain Cucumber or Cucumber Open, as we've now officially named it. So that's Matwin, Aurelien Reeves, and myself. But there is also a team of maybe six, seven, eight regular contributors outside of the company. And we meet up every Thursday at three o'clock UK time. We have about an hour meeting where we just sync up, you know, it's like a long stand-up meeting where we talk about what we've done and what we're going to do and various stuff. There's now many implementations of Cucumber. Originally it was Ruby, but there's a Java implementation. There is a JavaScript slash TypeScript implementation. There's a Go implementation. We're maintaining all of those. There's also the C Sharp .NET implementation, which is maintained by Tricentis, but we collaborate closely with them. So we meet up regularly. And one of the things that has been a main focus over the past few years is to consolidate the implementations so that they have the same feature set, follow the same design, making it easier to maintain everything because they're more similar. Because in the beginning, they kind of evolved and diverged quite a bit. So now we're at a place where things are pretty compatible. Cucumber is built up of several smaller libraries. You know, there's a Gherkin parser. We share the same test suite for all of the implementations in Java, Ruby, .NET, and so on. We have something called Cucumber Expressions, which is an alternative to regular expressions with the possibility to extend them. We have tag expressions for filtering out scenarios. It's a little Boolean expression language and a few other smaller libraries. So the approach we're taking is we store them in the same repository. They share an exceptions test suite and we try to implement them more or less, you know, consistently using the same method names and class names and so on. And that's worked out really, really well. One of the things that Matt has been focusing on in the past few months is to grow the contributor community because Cucumber is used by, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe over a million. And as you can imagine, with an open source project that's that popular, there's quite a lot of work to do. And even though we are a full-time team of two, three people, plus regular contributors, we're about 10 people, that's not enough. So we need to grow the community. And Matt and Aurelian, they've been working on trying to recruit new contributors, helping people who have never contributed to open source before and showing them how to get involved. It's actually streaming on Twitch every Friday. And that's been working really well. We've also improved the developer documentation so it's easier to get onboarded, figuring out where to start and so on. So I think that work is really important. One big project that we have now is to build better support for IDEs and editors. When you're working with feature files, you want to have the same kind of excellent support that you get when you're working with Java or Ruby or Go or whatever, which means uh, really good syntax highlighting. Uh, code completion is very important because you might have a library of hundreds of step definitions. So we're building something called the language server, which is the technology that makes it pioneered by Microsoft and Visual Studio Code. It basically lets you write an editor plugin that can be used in many different editors. So you don't have to write a plugin for every single editor. You just write one, and then that will work with all editors that support the LSP, the language server protocol. That's something that we've been working on in the past year, and hopefully that will be released in the next few months. And we hope that that's going to make it just more pleasant for people to work with Cucumber. We've also got an online reporting service where you can 
publish reports straight from Cucumber to a website. And that's one of the commercial products that we're working on inside of Smart Bear. It's great to hear that Twitch and these things that were not around in early 2000s when these products were started and generally the open source are great. I can relate to, you know, maybe young people who are now embarking on a journey, want to contribute to open source. If I would have a chance 10, 15 years earlier to watch someone on Twitch, how they do things. <laughs> I mean, that's a huge thing. It's not easy to get access to someone's knowledgeable workstation and look how they're dealing with big and small challenges as they're developing. So yeah, sounds great. We're a 13-year-old open source project and we've gone through several different communication channels. We had a Google group mailing list that went on for quite a long time. And then the activity on that just became less and less because we turned on a Slack channel. So now we have a Slack channel with 10,000 or nearly 15,000 members that's completely eclipsed the Google mailing list. We've actually disabled the mailing list now. And then, yeah, we see new things like video streaming becomes more and more important. People want instant gratification now, right? They don't have the attention span to read a mailing list or write an email. You know, it has to be instant gratification in video or Twitter-sized messages. There is components of that. And there is, I think, also a component just being with other people, you know, in some format, which with Slack, I don't know. The instant nature of it scares me in terms of connected with open source projects. But I know that many, many communities do use Slack for their communication. I guess there are some challenges. The main challenge with Slack is that, you know, it's not easily searchable and it also doesn't keep history forever, at least not on the plan we're on. And it's not a great collective memory of what has been said. You know, mailing lists are better for that, but they're dated. So I'm not 100% happy with Slack. It works pretty well, but sometimes, you know, I want to go back to this old conversation. I can't find it. Or something important is said and it's just scrolled past and you miss it, right? So it's more like face-to-face -face communication. Exactly. Anyone listening wants to join? Here is an open source project, which is interesting. It has been around for more than a decade and will be around for decades to come. So yeah. Aslak, thank you so much for uh, joining and sharing the history and the future of Cucumber and all about uh, BDD that we talked about also. And good luck to the project. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Darko. Take care.